Hi, and welcome to Forest for the Future, the podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in an FSC and around FSC and what innovations are underway. Today will be yet another special episode for two reasons. First of all, it's because it's recorded live during the FSC event, Would You Find It in Brussels on April 25th, 2023. Secondly, because it's the second of three episodes based on the content of that day. At the event, EU policymakers, NGOs, companies, representatives from producing countries, competent authorities, the forest sector, and producers and journalists met to learn, discover, debate, and imagine together a world in which we know exactly where every piece of wood and paper comes from. The event was built around a brand new piece of EU legislation, EUDR, or European Deforestation Regulation is the formal name. And if you don't know what that legislation is, I urge you to pause here and go back to episode 57, where the EU Commission representative Astrid Lelfel and FSC CIO Michael Marus set the scene and give a bit more background. In this episode, we dive further into how implementation and compliance could be done and also look at how this new piece of legislation might provide additional values to companies as they transition. On the panel, we have Jade Saunders, Executive Director for World Forest ID, Joanna Nevakowska, FSC's Systems Performance Director, Anke Schulmeister Oltenhove, who is a Senior Forestry Policy Officer at WWF Europe, Annie Adams, who is an independent senior advisor for Kingfisher, and Uran Rodriguez, who is a senior manager for EU affairs at Planet. The session was moderated by Miriam Zadi, and I will let Miriam take the word from here. Okay, welcome back to everyone in the room. And of course, you'll be ready with your questions for our lovely female-only panel. Round of applause for that, please. <laughs> Okay, so this panel is really about hearing the different perspectives, so the environmental, the social, the economic, technological, from all of, you know, various stakeholders. We want to hear their voices with a special focus, of course, on the wood sector and how they can see it all working and perhaps offer advice on how to improve it. As I said, there will be a massive opportunity for all of you to ask your questions. Um, and considering we have a female-led panel, I'd like to see lots of women raising their hands to ask the questions too. Solidarity, ladies, come on. Okay, so with that, let me now introduce these lovely ladies next to me. So we have Anke Schulmeister oldenhoven She is the Senior Forest Policy Officer at WWF EPO. We then have Irene Benito-Rodriguez, Senior Manager for EU Affairs at Planet. Then we have Annie Adams, Independent Senior Advisor at Kingfisher. Joanna Novakowska, who's a System Performance Director at FSC. And then we have Jade Saunders, who's Executive Director at World Forest ID. So with that, let's hand over to Anka for and the opening sort of presentation. I wanted to give you actually three numbers. One is 2020, one is 2030, one is 2023. 2020 was the deadline under the Sustainable Development Goals to hold deforestation. The whole world had committed to stop deforestation. Look where we are today. 2030 seems to be the new kid in town. So that's the new date by when we want to stop deforestation globally. Hooray. Let's maybe have a quick check-in on 2023. So this year is four months old. 
We already had two large forest fires in Europe, one in Spain, one in France, already raging. We have droughts in Italy, in France, parts of Germany, UK, and we're expecting record temperatures again for the summer. So if anybody tells me climate change is not here, let's go and have a coffee afterwards. Why do we seem to be able to be so good in tracing back our commitments, but it seems to be so difficult to trace back where our timber sources come from? And I'm a bit puzzled there because, yes, we are now talking about going back to plots of land, something which the NGO community, including that we have supported. But traceability, for all those of you in the room who deal with timber, should not be something new. Because this is something that EU timber regulation, who entered into force in 2013, to give you a fourth number, required from you. Knowing which country the products came from, no matter whether it was for roundwood or for paper or for other, and for risk regions, already the regions going below it. So it is not something that is totally new. Yes, this law is asking for more. Why is it asking for more? Because we had the Utima regulation and we realized, as some lesson learned, if you are not going more granular, it's not going to work. I mentioned climate change because, you know, we always see it as a very abstract thing, you know, fine. It's nothing to do with my private life, but I think it does with all of our lives. Our lives as consumers, but also you as being workers or owners of companies. Because what's happening at the moment is more forest fires means more forest loss, more timber loss, more of your natural resource base lost. And if we don't come together and try to figure out what the challenge is and how we can address it, and I do think traceability is just the first step in it, we're going to run into trouble for all of us and for our future. Hi, so everyone, uh, my name is Irene Benito and I work for Planet, which is a company that has been mentioned a couple of times. Um, I'm representing today the Earth observation sector and the space industry broadly, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about Earth observation as a technology, what's the role within the regulation, and how it relates to geolocation. What is Earth observation? We have the largest constellation of Earth observation satellites in history. We have more than 200 satellites orbiting the Earth every day. And with these kind of capabilities, we can image every single location on the planet every single day at a level of detail that we like to call near tree level. Today, we have the technology on the commercial sector to provide, in a way, a line scan of the Earth on a daily basis. We have in Europe, you will probably hear about the Copernicus a program, which is fantastic, and it's also made reference to in the regulation. Copernicus, the equivalent satellites, Sentinel-2, are also for free, so it's incredible. And they're providing a line scan of the Earth every five days. And this is, of course, incredible because with this kind of technology, merging commercial technology with publicly available technology, you can really detect changes in the Earth in your real time. And this is, I think, unparalleled, and it's an incredible step forward in terms of monitoring capabilities for, for humanity. And we are so excited and me personally but also as a space community that the commission has really taken leadership globally not only in the ambition to preserve and to protect the world's forests but also to leverage what is available technologically in an area that is not super obvious i mean not everyone carrying out environmental regulation is a geospatial expert but they have really gone as far as taking the technology that is available 
really at the forefront of technological development, both commercially and publicly, and making sure that the regulation in its ambition reflects what is feasible, but also in its implementation phase. However, of course, we cannot stop here. We need to make sure that not only we have these tools, but that we make sure that those that will be responsible for implementing the regulation, but also those that are subject to the regulation, will be able to access these tools and will be able to actually be successful with the regulation. Because if we're not successful, we will not create the global leadership that we're hoping to start at the EU level and hopefully globally to really protect the forests. Annie Adams, I'm here in an independent capacity, but also an advisor to Kingfisher PLC, which is a founding member of FSC and founded it to help combat deforestation, which is why we're still all sadly here, as we've noted. So I guess I wanted to talk really fundamentally about the fact that we have to acknowledge this regulation is here as a game changer for the private sector, that it is here to change business. And we have to accept that, that this regulation is coming into force and that we really do have to agree together to work to develop consensus. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear if there's any milestones on when guidance is likely to be published, but given that we're all working to, to decide who's in the different working groups, I'm guessing it's 12 to 18 months until we can see any guidance. So the private sector cannot and should not wait for guidance and we must work together, develop consensus and really make sure that we've got some pragmatic solutions so we can start to get ready now. We must not wait for the guidance and for 18 months after entry into force for the benchmarking to do that. So urgent action is needed now on consensus. And that's really, I think, an important take home message. I think it's also important to recognise from a private sector that this does give us an opportunity to genuinely and credibly be able to connect our supply chains to deforestation free sources and to make sure that we actually have product on our shelves for the long term, which is a really important thing that we, we know right now, and we're not going to go into the details, but frankly, supply is a bit of an issue for quite a lot of people in this room. And it's going to be more of an issue if we're not able to ensure that our supply chains really are deforestation free for the long term. So there's a significant opportunity there, as well as to connect to meaningful claims around what is in our products. Lovely, thank you so much. Um, next to you, Anna. Actually, during the first panel, I would have to rewrite everything that I plan to say in this part because so many challenges were already brought up. So I'm Joanna and we are FSC. Yeah, ah. come on, guys. <laughs> Nowadays, it seems, especially for us in Europe, in the so-called developed world, to think that everything is traceable, everything is accessible. Our lives are accessible through social media, through banking and administrative systems. We have very precise geolocation data that will tell uh, our car where to drive, that will tell our plane how to land itself. And it is all because we managed to develop some complex and interoperable system. So we think everything is really easy. So why is so much noise about geolocation and EUDR then? Where is the actual problem? It is not a problem to locate where the wood or piece of wood is coming from. The real problem is to travel this data along this complex and global supply chains. I have very much appreciated some comments that were shared before. Now, I would like to add a little bit to this complexity since I was dealing with controlled wood in the past. So geolocation requirement in EUDR is combined with timing of production. And as it happens, 
slightly differently the agriculture, when it comes to forestry, you can do many, many various things from one tree. And then you can do those different products at the very different times. So overlaying the data related to geolocation with the data around timing of production opens up completely new challenge that we need to look at. And this adds to this complexity, to this adds to this logistical problem, this adds to traveling of data. But there is more. There is also mass balance system that was mentioned, where if you combine all of this data, even if you arrive at common consensus of how you should collect it and how you should store it and make it available, then you end up, as somebody said previously in the room, with the series of plots of geolocation coordinates from the whole country. So where does it leave us in terms of assessing whether this whole effort actually led to deforestation and reducing degradation? So I think what is really important for us, as Annie said, to work together and seize this opportunity is to arrive at proper data standardization. And I would put it as the highest priority for all of us to work together, to allow this data to travel and to not create additional unreasonable burden and to allow us to connect system, as Michael was very nicely presenting our efforts in this direction, so that together we can actually make use of that. And that's not all, because the data, if you don't know why you use them and for what you use them, is actually meaningless or can be very easily meaningless. So. If you want to have a data, you first need to know why do you want to have it. And this is the aspect of monitoring and evaluation system that I think it's also another fantastic opportunity behind the regulation. Because the whole, I was, I was screening the regulation text, the, the last draft available, referencing in April announcement, and degradation words appeared many times on almost every page of this regulation. But the requirement is very simple, the wood harvested from forests should not lead to degradation. How do we know it? Degradation in terms of forest ecosystems can be assessed in many different ways, but needs to be done on the scale. So if operators are now required to prevent degradation, we need a series of data over a period of time to say, did my operation really contribute to, the, to degradation? How do I know it? How many years I need to monitor my plot of land? Is it really a forest that is half hectare of size with 10% of trees, five meters long. If I remove one, how do I contribute to degradation? And if my neighbors are doing the same thing at the very same time, do we all collectively contribute to degradation or not? Where is the threshold? So there's a lot of questions to answer around those topics. And, and it's actually very exciting. So I would like to close here for now to say that this is tremendous opportunity and, and it is a historic moment to introduce such a regulation. So, as FST was trying to convene for many years, let's work together and let's not put the whole responsibility on the Commission, because they already did their part, as Astrid said, and, and we need to support that. We need to now, everybody put the effort to make it work. Thank you so much. Okay, perfect. I've been finally over to Jade. <laughs> Um, hello, my name's Jade Saunders. I'm the Exec Director of World Forest ID. Thank you for inviting me to be here. World Forest ID is a fairly new organisation. We have been set up to 
create the reference material necessary to enable the scientific testing that Astrid referred to and Michael also. So I think I will speak from the perspective of an organisation whose mission is to create a new data set that can make this the ambition behind the EU deforestation regulation real. For those of you who know me from days of yore, I also speak with 10 years of experience of working with the enforcement community responsible for the EU timber regulation, the ILPA team in Australia and the uh, Lacey interagency group in the States. There's a deep knowledge of the challenges that confronted everyone for compliance and for enforcement under the EU timber regulation. So I think first thing I wanted to say is I, I want to come out and say very clearly that I think that the deforestation regulation, while there are still, you know, details to be worked out, it's not going to be perfect. There are still places it needs to go in terms of, you know, other impacts other than deforestation, other communities, uh, as well as those trading in timber. I still think that it's an amazing step forward compared to the original piece of legislation that everyone was working to. So I think that's really important. And I think it's important also to understand it in in the context of many other pieces of legislation that are aiming to achieve the same thing, which is accountability for supply chain impacts. I know that there are people in the room who feel like their particular industry, their particular sector, their particular supply chain is being kind of unfairly targeted, is going to be put under undue pressure. But the reality is that this is something that's happening across the board. It's happening with human rights, it's happening with carbon, it's happening with biodiversity, all of the global supply chains that we are all involved in as operators, regulators and consumers are being subject to a level of scrutiny and accountability that they never have before. And that's for a reason. And unfortunately, geolocation, traceability, challenging though it is to achieve, is an essential prerequisite to any kind of accountability and transparency. So I think that's a painful truth, but a truth nonetheless, that it's important to put on the table. As I said, World Forest ID is a fairly young organisation. We've got a couple of really amazing core supporters in the room, FSC primarily, but also Kingfisher, who have you know supported the development of World Forest ID as an organisation, which is very much appreciated. Our mission is to collect physical samples in forests and farms across the world. So that's, we call them vulnerable and virtuous, obviously working with FSC to collect samples in FSC certified forests, but also in places that are outside of that kind of protection. So you've heard about DNA, you've heard about stable isotopes, but that's not the entirety of the scientific techniques that we're looking into, because what we want to do is create numerous data layers which can be harnessed together to give us the best possible chance of achieving genuine scrutiny of traceability claims. So we're sending basically the samples off to different labs, university labs and commercial labs, and then pulling all of the data back together. So there are various scientific techniques which um, achieve species identification, which I think everyone knows about. And then there are a number which are looking at origin, location of harvest. So how do we create the reference material necessary to do these traded tests, to test for enforcement officials 
to check the geolocation. The most promising of them are CSIRO, which is stable isotopes, trace element analysis, there's a couple of versions, and DNA analysis. That's something that we're still working out. Obviously, the sweet spot is a set of data which gives you the most value and knowledge at the lowest cost. And we are also creating statistically robust models to interpret this data across the range. And I think that's something where we've really moved the whole discussion on. So the ambition is to put all of this range data for the different, you know, across the geographical range, spatial um, data for the chemistry and the DNA of trees, and layer that with the kind of earth observation information that you've heard about, soil information, climate information, and really try to make tighten up the kind of resolution that we've all talked about and make explicit confidence levels so that this stuff becomes actionable, so that you can use it in the context of commercial contracts and it can be used in the context of investigations and prosecutions by the regulators. There have been some fairly wild claims made around this science. I've had conversations with people in this room where they say, oh, you mean that you can't give me a unique chemical ID for every 10 kilometer plot or every tree or whatever? No, this is not the silver bullet. This is not going to solve all the problems on its own, but it's a really powerful set of techniques. And the most compelling thing that got me interested in this is that this is the set of techniques which is used at scale when governments want to protect the interests of their own farmers in the West. So there are databases for strawberries that show that they come from farms in Estonia versus farms in, you know, across the border outside the single market. There are databases that protect the Appalachians for wine. It's possible to create these databases. It's possible to, you know, get governments to, to fund these databases. And it is possible for corporates to use them at scale. I've had conversations in the sustainability offices of large food retailers where they say, oh, this sounds really expensive. And I say, do you know, down the hallway, there's a whole team of people working on contracts for this stuff. Because when you buy Manuka honey and you pay a premium for it, or when you buy fizzy wine made from grapes grown in the Champagne region of France, and it costs more than the, that fizzy wine would, make, would cost if the grapes were grown in Spain or Croatia and bust to the Champagne region of France. Like, you're willing to pay. These are premium products, and I understand that there's more value in the chain where you can, you know, find the points in the chain where you can extract the money. But this is the difficult truth, is that it is going to cost more to manage supply chains with this degree of traceability. Um, and that's, I guess, uh, yeah, I started with a difficult truth and I'll end on another difficult truth. But um, I think what we are aiming to do is make this technology available at scale to as many companies and labs as want to start testing. And hopefully that will bring down the uh, slightly awkward, or the awkward truth of, ex of uh, additional cost. Now, I think we can see the broad consensus on this panel is that you guys, you know, you do support what the Commission 
is trying to do or is doing. I mean, for example, Annie, I think you said you spoke about it's time that, you know, it's about that accepting that change is here. And so everyone needs to move on and get on that train. Um, but is geolocation really the tool, Jade? Was there perhaps a better way that the Commission could have done it? Well, I don't think it is the tool, but it's an essential prerequisite to the broader set of tools, if that makes sense. You can't be accountable for what happens in your supply base if you don't know where your supply base is. That's, it's, it's, and, and as I said, this is not specific to the EU deforestation regulation. It's not specific to the forest sector. It's in all industries that have international supply chains, scope three emissions. It's almost like the boring bit. <laughs> if you, I know it's complicated, but it should be, you know, it should be. I, I wouldn't say it's the tool. I would say it's the essential prerequisite. Okay. And Johanna, follow up with you then. I mean, obviously you've worked in forest management as well. And in your sort of opening gambit, you were talking about how you've sort of rewritten everything or rethought about everything that you wanted to say. Um, so, so, you know, what has the conversation, you know, that you've heard around you sort of, has it changed or reshaped what you were thinking? I think we don't have enough time really to answer that question. Uh, there is, there was a lot of uh, thoughts triggered, but I think that there are still, first and foremost, few very important clarifications that, that we need to arrive to in order to start really actively working on it. So I see a lot of energy, I see a lot of concerns, but I also see this this really excitement building up. Let's finally do something. Let's stop talking about this. Let's finally, let's finally do something. So I mentioned standardization. This is for me another prerequisite to, to make use, proper use of geolocation data. And, and in that sense, we can reflect on few things. So um, the regulation, for example, requires the operators to know uh, the full common and scientific name of a species when it is applicable. Now imagine small growers that, for example, work on some plantations where there are hybrid species. I am a forester and I would say, isn't it obvious to know what kind of species you are sourcing? Okay, you may not know exact geolocation or coordinates, but you have to know the species, right? Well, apparently it's not that obvious sometimes, um, especially in the context of what kind of database of species name you are going to apply. And uh, do you even have a, a position in your database to pick up from in order to say what kind of hybrid it was? When you then transport and process this material, it gets even more complicated. So again, the right data definition at the very beginning of this joint, again, joint exercise, is absolutely critical. Then in terms of the, the geolocation itself, um, if you Google geolocation or coordinates, you can find immediately at least three different ways in which you can present coordinate. Which one do we pick? And, and who, is, who is responsible of picking the right format? So, so the risk is here that if we all now start working separately and figure out, figuring out our own systems, we end up in the big, big, big set of data that is actually uh, of little use. So again, this aspect of monitoring and uh, knowing exactly what we want to achieve from this data from the start is very important. So, so it's time again to, uh, to work together. One more reflection that, that uh, discussion so far has triggered is of course the whole, whole landscape of EU policies. It's not only EUDR. And uh, I will take liberties to mention here uh, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is all very much about the data. So once we are 
figuring out what to do with UDR, how to travel the geolocation, how to travel the timing of production. Let's not forget that CSRD is actually already available and, and the only logic behind it is to make those two uh, sets of data interoperable and, and actually benefit from, from both legislation and set up one system and one collection um, mechanism for, for data that can serve both purposes. Annie, do you also support then this sort of common sense approach, this kind of idea of mucking in? Um, you know, you were talking, you know, about accepting that the change was here and you were saying um, that it might take 12 months for that guidance to come through. So what can um, the private sector do now um, in order to then deliver on geolocation? I think that we need to build consensus uh, in terms of some of those precise interpretations. So those simple things like exactly how we're going to record longitude and, and latitude and what we're going to do in terms of um, the date of harvesting and the, and the time range. We can use a time range. So let's make sure we can get some consensus. There's multiple trade associations. We've got FSC as a convener. I have to mention Kingfisher does buy PFC certified material as well. And PFC needs to be in the mix. We need to make sure that we are building consensus right across the sector in order to be able to deliver on this. Obviously, I have no no uh, crystal ball on when the Commission's guidance will be ready, but we need to work together to develop that guidance, and, and it's certainly going to be many months. So we already need to start to work to build consensus on those issues. And, and coming from a, a retail perspective, the challenges that, that we face, so we all know that one individual product could have a few thousand FMUs, therefore a few thousand geolocation points um, attached to it, hopefully in a CSV spreadsheet. So there's some interoperability that we've all been talking about. Actually, when you, you look from a retail perspective, that could be for 25,000 products. It's only a few thousand if you look at your batching. But when you repeat that over a year, we could be looking at up to 2 billion lines, potentially. So actually building some consensus and making sure that, that we really are very clear on our interpretation. Trade associations can work together with the conveners like FSC to make sure that we can agree on some really simple interpretations and, and get moving because we're already, we're, you know, we're going to see this publication in the next few weeks, almost certainly. And at, at that point, products being produced that is going to have to comply by the beginning of 2025 and it's going to be going onto shelves. So we need to be building this consensus now. And there's a really understandable reticence within the private sector. Many of my clients, I have a huge amount of sympathy to, to wait until there's more certainty Unfortunately, if we wait until we have more certainty, it will be too late for us to be able to comply and we can't place products on the market unless we comply. So we've got to start talking now. Trade associations need to work together ahead of the working groups. So we need to be building advocacy together. So, so staying on your point of reticence in the private sector, um, Anka, coming to you then. Are NGOs in support of the traceability feature of UDR? Indeed we are. And I think, you know, I find it quite interesting to hear now what we're saying about all the challenges. Let's maybe keep one thing in mind that when we talk about interpretation of these things, I think that's the prerogative of the European Commission. And in the end, if it comes hard to heart of courts to determine, you know, what certain elements mean. So, you know, um, and I do not think that it's a political negotiation how certain things are supposed to be interpreted because we have a legislation that sets the baseline for it. I've been in this job for 17 years. So I've seen what it means to work on an ambitious law like the Ultima regulation and then see what it means in practice if there's no proper enforcement and if there's no clarity what it means. 
I think having traceability down to plot of land makes things clearer. I mean, let's be clear. What is this law about? Make sure you don't have in your supply chain products linked to conversion, one land use to another, and this way is forced to something else, or degradation. I mean, we have to also be very clear that from an NGO perspective, the forest degradation definitions legislation is something we're going to not smile about. What we have seen, though, is that under the Otima regulation, there were a lot of ways of trying to circumvent the legislation. You know, saying, oh, well, it was produced here, well, it was produced elsewhere. That's why I do think it's important also to have, you know, kind of tools to make sure that, you know, we can control what was, was done. And it was about, okay, where do I go where I have less controls? And I mean, I'm, I'm asked the question back, so is this really what we want? So this is like, okay, I'm trying to make the life most easy for me, no matter what the consequences are. I do not say that we should, you know, overcomplicate our life. But I do think we are now at the brink of, you know, a time where things change and not for the better, especially for, as I said already, our supply for timber and others. But what we want is to make sure that we can figure out, okay, has this area been deforested after a certain date or degraded? And I do think, you know, that's what um, traceability down to your location can do. And just maybe a comment on this side, there was this issue about how many thousands or whatever geolocation we do need to provide. Let's keep in mind that this legislation is before you place a product on the market and it is based on what you place on the market. So it's not that you keep the data for a year. I mean, it is your choice what you want to provide as data. But the legislation also makes it very clear that in the moment, from a certain plot of land or area, something comes from deforestation, you cannot put anything from that plot of land on the market. So think about how big you want to make your plots of land. And I do think that is also a help to do it like this. Don't make it a whole state forest, because if something in the state forest goes over, then you have a problem with all the other rest of the timber produced there as well. Annie, would you, would you like to follow up on, on, on what Anke says on traceability? Yeah, so I think that it's going to be a, a huge problem to genuinely and credibly deliver traceability for end consumer products for the for the products that go on the shelf and I sure as heck don't have the solution right here right now but we're going to have to work together to, to try to work out how to deliver on that um, and I'll keep going back to that phrase of consensus building um, and admitting the complexity and the difficulty that the private sector are absolutely going to face on delivering that and considering how we can be pragmatic where, for example, we can see that we are getting enough traceability, we've got the geolocation, we've got verifiable data to confirm that geolocation such as WFID might be able to provide. How can we be pragmatic in the level of information that we check on traceability where we have homogenous risk at, for example, a subnational level and whether we do need to go and, ha and check traceability for each individual plot of land back from um, a primary or, or secondary processing point back to those individual forest owners. If we have demonstrated homogenous negligible risk, then I'm not sure the answer actually is to have that level of granularity. So it's also about that key phrase of, of granularity and also of, of precision and trying to come together to work out how far we really need to take this to deliver effectively good due diligence on this regulation. Okay, Can I add to that? Yes, please go ahead. Great. So 
Firstly, starting from the fact that, I mean, Earth observation looks extremely cool, but of course, it's not the absolute answer for everything. You will need to verify this kind of data with a ground truth. And also, it can really help, for example, to identify hotspots where risks could arise. So really to identify these needles in the haystack, where then you can send, for example, people in the field to verify what is going on. So it can, but, but you will not have a comparable global coverage with another technology. But what can you actually see? And why is it so relevant for the traceability um, topic, for the granularity co comments that have been made? So you can actually verify for smallholder um, plots of land. So we're talking about something around 10 square meters, whether since the cutoff date, at any point of time, there has been deforestation or degradation, of course, different parameters that you can use as a proxy, at any point of time, anywhere in the world. Why? Because you saw this amazing um, time series that, that I showed. And, but of course, this is only what you can see with the naked eye. What is the information behind this kind of time series? We have information on spectral bands that are not visible to the naked eye, which are extremely important to assess vegetation health. But also we have a lot of models, analytics, and solutions that are provided by service uh, providers, which automatically assess this information and detect changes. Changes, for example, on assessments on tree-level um, information, tree species, tree age, um, how is this called? Stem volume estimations, but also on um, parameters that can help you assess decline in ecosystem health, which can then be a, a proxy for degradation. For example, you can look at declining chlorophyll levels of um, plants. You can look at decline in water content that can be an early indicator for drought. You can look at above ground biomass changes, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of parameters that you can detect, as I said, globally on a near daily basis because sometimes there's clouds. However, this is not only important because in real time you'll be able to detect these changes, but because all of this information is stored in a global daily archive. So you can, in theory, and, and you should be able to, for any plot of land globally, run an assessment since the cutoff date until today of whether anything has happened in that plot of land. For example, selective logging could be an early indicator for deforestation or for degradation. You can, because of having this daily and granular near tree level data, you can detect if at any point in time, a single tree has been chopped off in a plot of land anywhere in the world. I mean, even if maybe you don't always need this granularity, the granularity is there in the data. However, again, we need to have effective models that will allow us to get this. We'll need validation for different species, etc., etc. The fantastic news is that it's not something like in theory that could happen in the future. It's something that is real today. But of course, like not everyone has access to this information. And we need to make sure that when we enter the implementation phase, those stakeholders that are going to be um, influenced by the regulation will have access to the necessary tools. And they don't need to be geospatial experts. Well, let me follow up with you. Um, there was a lot of pessimism. In, in, in the first panel, but you're very sort of optimistic. So is this really a system that can work and is infrastructure really in place? Of course, it's not a system that can work, it's a system that works. And we go back to geolocation being Prerequis essential prerequisite. <laughs> of course, we can do amazing things to assess what is going on, a land use conversion. You can look at species, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you need to know what to look at. So, I mean, here, you know, it's the it's why I think Earth observation and, and just broadly space is literally the other side of the geolocation coin. Because if you don't know what you're looking at and who owns what, then it doesn't matter what you detect and how are you going to assign um, ownership. So again, geolocation, I think, is just, I mean, if you don't have geolocation, it doesn't matter, like, 
whatever you can do, like, full stop. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Joanna wants to make a comment. Do you want to grab oh, this one with you? Go ahead. Thank you. So I will be continuing granularity. Um, one of the very intriguing parts of regulation for me specifically is definition of the plot of land. Because it does speak about the fine scale of real estate property, but there is the end in this definition. And this end is followed by homogeneity in terms of assessing risk of deforestation and for wood products, it means risk of degradation. And in forest management, when you look at the risk of degradation, you usually go wider. And I would like to follow up on this, on this issue of granularity versus how to make it, make it work and, and uh, what the due diligence really is, what, what is very important component of the due diligence as a part of this regulation and its implementations are actually good risk assessments. So that's one of the very important tools that we can use and refine to help us implementing EUTR. As you probably know, uh, FST has around 60 risk assessment at the moment available. They were done old manual style, but now we are in the revision process and we are already uh, looking at this, uh, at this instrument in the light of UDR and also other EU policies to make it much more data-driven, much more accessible and being able to be updated quickly according to changing conditions. Also in the light of uh, European Union ambition to monitor regulation regulation, to change the risk designation on the periodical basis, to use the data on continuous basis. So um, the risk assessment, the good, really properly done risk assessment based on technology, based on objective data, can be a very important instrument supporting this whole uh, regulation. And we are very much looking forward to, um, to deliver this instrument, the next generation of, uh, of our risk assessment. Thank you. But let me just follow up with you. Um, is it easy then for FSC to update your normative requirements then um, to align with UTR? Well, we can say that updating normative requirements technically is very easy. You just write new standard and you publish it. <laughs> but <laughs> You make it sound really, really easy. <laughs> but... It's again, isn't it obvious to know your species of wood or isn't it obvious to know where this, uh, where this piece of wood is coming from? So yes, technically it's easy, but FSC particularly is a convener. It's a chamber balance organization where we try to really agree with our stakeholders on what should be in the standard. And, and that's what we have been doing for the last 30 years. <laughs> so I think if we, are, we are really experienced in, in dialogue and exploring and hearing people. And we have even, um, I, I can bet that, uh, that Astrid probably will sympathize with me. We have a saying during standard setting that if everybody leaves the room unhappy, it means that we achieve some consensus because equal amount of voices and concerns were probably heard. So nobody can be really totally happy at the end if a standard or probably regulation is issued, but it is important to hear all the voices. So from that perspective, we would not be FSC if you would just write the standard in Bonn and publish it. So from that perspective, it's not easy because we need to make sure that all the voices and not only voices related to European Union market, but also the rest of the world are equally heard. And we try to do our best to really make it visible in our normative requirements. Thank you. Okay, well, listen, um, these ladies have been speaking so fluidly. Um, so we only have five minutes of, you know, questions that I can ask you. And obviously, we're going to then go to the floor. Let's just see a quick um, show of hands. Who's got questions for our lovely panellists? 
Yeah, okay, so quite a few. Perhaps a final sort of rapid question then for all of you. What's the one improvement to geolocation that you would advocate for? Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that perhaps you think could be discussed? Um, and I'll start with Anka. Traceability in this legislation is part of due diligence. Due diligence means you do assess and mitigate the risk to a negligible level. Very difficult word. And I think it means beyond a reasonable doubt. So in the end... In, you need to determine what for you is beyond reasonable doubt on what you put forward with regard to traceability on geolocation. When are you going to be beyond a reasonable doubt secure that you want to put this product on the market? I think this is the question you need to ask yourself along the whole process. Okay, so I think trust is a really good thing to pick up on here. And I think that is an opportunity for the private sector to, to build trust. So I think geolocation brings with it some massive challenges, and I'm not underestimating them, but, but huge opportunities, building on that trust in relationships, strengthening, improving supply chains. And for example, once we've got the single window environment operating five years after entry into force, something like that, I'm really hopeful that we'll actually see much less very high-risk product coming into the EU, full stop. That's really good for all of us. More I hear from exporters or from people working with farmers, it is clear that many people already, like the, these plots of land at the coordinates are already clear and localized in most cases. However, the issue of trust and of traceability, I think, remains. But I am confident that with the kind of solutions and the technology that we have today, we'll be able, firstly, to flag these high-risk areas where we really need to put a, give a closer look, but also that fraudulent behavior at some point with the kind of information that, um, that traders or operators will have to report and the kind of tools available to competent authorities, fraudulent behavior will come out. From my perspective, obviously, the one thing, going back to your original question that needs to be done, is to invest in the reference material that makes it possible for companies and enforcement officials across the EU. And hopefully my government will follow the uh, commission and the Biden you know, exec order in, in the US that's exploring options will result in a piece of similar legislation there. So this is not just about the EU. We need the investment at scale in order for the data to flow. So it's, it's, it's painful, but that's the piece that needs, from my perspective, is the, the one blocker that needs booting out of the way. I will close saying that it's really, truly historical moment, um, for sure for FST and I'm sure for many of us. And that something that doesn't challenge you, doesn't change you. Mm -hmm. And... Everything is possible. It is just a matter of time. And in terms of time, there is one thing that historically has always worked. The deadline. Well said. <laughs> okay, well, let's now open up the floor to questions. My name is Duncan Brack. I'm a freelance researcher. I'm also working with the Tropical Forest Alliance on these uh, issues. Questions for Irene. Um, I've sat in two presentations in the last few months from traders sourcing commodities from uh, potentially deforested areas who both said you can never rely on satellite imaging, particularly where you're seeing a mixture of deforestation and forest degradation and planting of commodities that are themselves grown on trees like cocoa or palm oil. Um, are you saying that, given the modern kind of techniques that you're talking about, that satellite imaging by itself 
can prove compliance or non-compliance with the deforestation criterion in the regulation. And the question for Jade, um, I know we're supposed to be talking about wood, but could you briefly comment on the applicability of the techniques you're talking about to the other commodities? We don't see such a wide range of species. Are they particularly better suited to some or not to others? Thanks. So I think I can comment to that. Um, you can only see what you can see, of course. And with current um, Earth observation data, not only the one that Planet provides, but we also have radar satellites. We also have LIDAR laser technology that can look under canopies to a limited extent. You can see a lot. However, what you can really see is whether there's been deforestation or degradation. So if you're growing something under a tree and you're not messing up with the tree, then my understanding is that that is compliant with the regulation, Anke? Yes? Astrid? Astrid, <laughs> Astrid so, you come I mean, back you up again. So you can see whether, you know, growing a certain type of commodity under a tree has affected a diverse range of parameters, whether this, has, this tree has been chopped down to grow something. You cannot see um, more than that. So there is a limit, of course. You cannot see under the ground, for example. You cannot see under very dense canopies. But in principle, anything else, any kind of um, impact on what can be seen from the surface, you can monitor. There is a limitation, of course, but in my understanding, most of what will be covered by the EUDR, like to a very high percentage, will be able to be actually checked and verified with high-resolution Earth observation data, which is what we have today. We have the data globally already, so we know where the gaps are. And the incredible thing of Earth observation is that once you reference with ground truth a specific variable, you'll be able to find this in the data globally. I get sometimes the impression we say, well, don't know how to do it, doesn't know how to do it. A, let's be very clear, we have at least two countries in the EU where there are systems in place where you can already trace. That is Romania and that's Bulgaria. I'm not going to talk about the quality of those product, uh, pro, uh, you know, databases. Mm -hmm. They all have, you know, certain issues. But the Sumal project in Romania, the data system that the government uses, traces via mobile phones where certain shipments are leaving from. So we're not starting from scratch here. Also, what I do think is important, also what Jay just said and earlier, you know, let's learn from other sectors. I mean, you know, strawberries, you need to know where they come from. You know, the sector of cocoa, they, you know, do have systems in place, which also, by the way, they try to have smallholders doing this with certain phones. And I know that, you know, there is uh, my colleagues in Asia working on a project for palm oil, Hamuni, where you can actually, you know, until the mill, follow back the direct and the indirect, you know, sourcing, because that's one of the other issues to the mill, direct and indirect sourcing via a simple satellite tool. And let's not forget, because friends of ours are actually working in the mining sector, a tree is not as easy to transport as is a piece of gold. I think it's not only about consensus, it's about being open to learn from the others and how to make it applicable to the sector that we are working in. I do think, you know, what we learned from the Otima regulation, especially from the US Lacey Act, is that companies said, we changed our relationship with our suppliers. We provided, you know, um, more information to them. We had more constant uh, relationships or longer contracts. You know, we helped them and we worked together on this. And I do think, you know, for me, that is something which is the solution and it links back to trust. You know, trust can be established by also guiding them and helping them. We have to accept that um, it is a moving target. So what we can do now versus what we'll be able to hopefully do in 2025 and then again in 2030 and beyond is going to change. So there are going to be gaps in what science can help us deliver in terms of due diligence. We're going to have to be pragmatic. Some of the products on the shelves 
in stores across Europe. We are not going to be able to use science right now to tell us whether or not it's deforestation and certainly whether it's degradation free. So we're going to have to be pragmatic and, and work together with our suppliers. And that comes back to that point of consensus that we have to be able to agree together what it is that we're trying to achieve and trying to be pragmatic, accepting the gaps that we currently have, particularly in the composite supply chains. Casper Kopp from an Amazon initiative, and I'll dare put forward a question on behalf of the forest managers and operators in the Amazon. With regards to this uh, wonderful technology, both uh, Planet, uh, Wood ID, and uh, blockchain, how do we, or FSE, plan to make this accessible to the forest managers, the forest owners, let alone the smallholders, the communities, so this does not create a, bar a market barrier for the tropical timber as such. And another question is, uh, with regards to ground truthing, FSE already has a uh, boots on the ground. Uh, they have a, a band of uh, certification bodies running around the forest. Can this be used for ground truthing? What is your ideas about this uh, so that the forest managers can uh, benefit from this uh, third partification uh, going on already? This is a wonderful question. Shortly, quickly speaking, yes, we hope so. Yes, we want to be solution and we want to be meaningful solution for, for all of those challenges. And indeed, we have strong assurance system with established set of professionals uh, performing audits in certified forests, in certified supply chains. Uh, there were actually initial ideas to, to collect samples for wood ID through auditors. It's not idea that necessarily have to be abandoned. So, so FSC is currently working intensively of, of looking at our normative framework, identifying where the exact gaps are because the larger gaps we already can recognize or we can recognize how our system is set up today versus what kind of solutions we want to become in the context of EU policies. So we want to improve our system and definitely provide opportunity for, for our stakeholders to, to be, um, be responding to EU policy challenges. I'm Maune Alves from Brazil, clubbing, pulp and paper sector. My question is regarding something some of you mentioned about the machine learning that is needed to trust or can use properly all these new tools we have available. How do you think that this machine learning will fit in the timeline we have from, from now? Do you believe that we will be really able to trust those, those tools properly? So when I talk about machine learning, we, it's not some kind of notional future robot scary thing. It's the data processing that we are doing right now. I think that the models will increase in sophistication over time, but it, it's not like this is something that will come to fruition in 10 years. It's, I'm talking about a set of geoprocessing information that's, that's being built and is yielding results at the moment. Does it surprise you, though, that you hear um, so much sort of tech adversity? A little bit, although I have a 13-year-old daughter who's just started writing her school essays with chat GPT. So I've got like <laughs> the two ends of the spectrum to deal with. Um, no, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, change is hard for people, right? And it mm. sound, tech sounds expensive and everybody's facing economic constraints and, um, you know, and it's hard. Unfortunately, our comfort space is resulting in unprecedented and existentially threatening deforestation. Mm. So on many levels, it's time to get out of that comfort space. 
And with those words, we wrap up this second episode of three on EUDR based on the Would You Find It event in Brussels. Let's hope that the intentions of our panel come true, that we will be able to find smart, scalable and pragmatic solutions in time and be able to truly halt deforestation and forest degradation through a combined effort. In the next and final episode, you will hear much more about how this new legislation might support the reduction of pressure on the wolf's forest. But also, what does this piece of legislation actually look like if you're from the countries where we are sourcing all of those products? Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC and the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I'm Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future.